Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for May 21st, 2009. It's been a few weeks, but I'm excited to be back. And uh, a big welcome to everybody on the show today. We've got Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. Good afternoon, Admiral. <laughs> Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Hunter. And Mr. Chuck S. Monster from VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Good afternoon, Hunter. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Hunter, and I run RateVegas.com. Um, lots of news in the past month. Um, some of it may be expected with the economic situation, some less. A lot of interesting stuff. But um, I wanted to start off with a note. Uh, unfortunately, there are two notable deaths since we last recorded something. Um, the first is probably somebody that all of our listeners are familiar with, which is who is Mr. Danny Gans, who died unexpectedly on the 1st of May. Um, I don't really have much to add to the tributes that have already been voiced, other than to say it's clearly sad for his family and friends. I think actually his memorial service is going on as we speak. Um, he'll clearly be missed with a presence uh, on the Strip with regards to entertainment for years and in the community. I know that he did a lot for the community, was very active. So, you know, it's really a shame, and I'm sure uh, it will be a lesser place without him. But um, besides Danny Gans, I wanted to talk about Claudine Williams. Um, for those that don't know, uh, Mrs. Williams is one of the first prominent female gaming executives in a fairly male-dominated business. I believe she... Uh, ran the Holiday Inn property to now is uh, Harris, And um, I was hoping I could go to Dr. Dave here for a minute, and you could maybe quantify her impact on Nevada gaming a little bit and tell us a little bit about why she'll be missed. Yeah, she's one of the people who came up from working in the illegal casinos back in Louisiana and Texas. She actually worked for Benny Binion when he was in Texas, when he was running in illegal uh, games out there. And, you know, started as a teenager, worked her way up, came out here with her husband, Shelby Williams, uh, ran the Silver Slipper, sold that to Howard Hughes, ran the Holiday Casino, which, according to many of the people I talked to, was the most profitable casino per square foot back then. And all the people I've talked to who have just raved about that casino said it was a perfect casino. Of course, since they've expanded it 100 times over and made it Harris, it's lost any sense of what it was then. You know, it doesn't have any of her... Hallmarks, you know, what she does as an operator in it today is just a generic Harris floor. But when, when it was a holiday casino back in the 70s, people said it was really a great casino and a model for others. Um, so it's not, you know, I think the important thing about her is not that she was just one of the first major women operators, even though that's important. She was just also a really good casino operator, which everybody seems to be unanimous on. Um, one of the people who was quoted um, talking about her in her obituary was Jack Minion, who, you know, I tend to take his word for it if he says somebody knows what they're talking about, because he certainly does. So, um, you know, yeah, she was really, you know, one of the great operators, one of the people who kind of brought the industry from illegitimacy to legitimacy. And also really, I, you know, I was lucky enough to meet her on several occasions and just always really nice, always had time to sit and talk to me and um, always had nice stuff to say about other people. So really classy woman, too. One of the things that I think is sort of interesting about her tenure at the holiday and then at the uh, and when it became Harris Las Vegas, and people don't really talk too much about the sort of long period between when the original MGM Grand 
that's now Bally's was built, and uh, you know until the Mirage um, opened, it was a time when the high-end casinos in Las Vegas were going under a lot of pressure, changing hands. Whether it was uh, Caesar's Palace, the Dunes, um, um, Desert Inn, some of those hotels, there, you know there was trouble at the high end here in town, but. The mid-market, lower-market casinos like the Holiday, like uh, Ralph Engelstadt's Imperial Palace, uh, Circus Circus with uh, with uh, um, the original owners, and then and then uh, Bill Bennett. Um, those casinos really found their heyday um, in the in, in that um, 70s period until uh, and and early 80s until um, Wynn came along at the end and built and uh, built the Mirage, and it was it was a time when those casino owners, including the Holiday, and I went to the Holiday. Um, it was carrying the Holiday Inn brand at the time. It was linked up with that system, and and eventually. Harris and Holiday and Split, but um, they were owned together. But the Holiday was one of those casinos that had like a million different offers, um, sort of like Bob Stupak did at the old Vegas world before they uh, built a big tower above it. Um, but it was an era when um, the the sort of individual entrepreneur uh, marketed his casino aggressively. Engelstadt did it at the uh, Imperial Palace. And a lot of these kind of um, offers and tour um, availability um, kind of things were what exposed Las Vegas more and more to the broad middle class um, as air travel became more and more affordable. Um, those casinos were really right at the heart of it. Um, you know, doing uh, direct mail and all kinds of um, sort of aggressive marketing pitches to bring people to town, folks who maybe couldn't have afforded it afforded it back in the days of, you know, the original Flamingo and Caesar's Palace and stuff like that. So Claudine was def and, 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 and was definitely a uh, a very aggressive marketer and and uh, you know when we talk later about Pansy Ho. Um, I think there's going to be a, there's sort of a connection um, that I wanted to mention in that Claudine start, got her start in illegal gambling, and here in Nevada we sort of have a sometimes we can get a little sanctimonious about you know when we talk about somebody like Pansy Ho whose dad has you know obviously has some connections with uh, some illegal activity in in Macau before, you know and. And we should remember that almost all of our town's uh, forefathers, the kind of people who came to Las Vegas, to, and uh, you know, they almost all had connections with illegal gambling somewhere else in the country. Claudine and and the, and the Binions, no exceptions. And you know, I think that sometimes we might want to give cut Pansy Ho a little slack. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. But um, Claudine definitely will be missed. Well, I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about her a little bit. Uh, you know, gaming in Las Vegas are not always great about uh, about their history. Um, and other than guys like Dave and, and what he's doing at, at the Center for Gaming Research, it's good to sort of remember sort of some of these really key figures and um, where they came from and what, what makes the place what it is today. So I'm glad that we were able to get a few words in. So... 
going from there, we'll get into our first topic of the day. Uh, and actually, there's a couple of stories that surround this single company. Um, the first, uh, the first things I want to talk about, and these are regarding MGM Mirage. Um, the last time we were together, it still looked like MGM was on the verge of catastrophe and might have been forced to sell one or more properties to raise enough cash to complete City Center. Uh, since then, the company came up with a financing plan that included both new equity and debt, along with um, some adjusted terms from some of their banks. And uh, I believe, you know, on the other end of the deal, they had to uh, allow some liens on some properties, including Bellagio and the Mirage, which may significantly reduce the chance those properties would be sold in the near term. But what I want to know is this. Uh, is MGM now out of the woods as, as when it comes to getting city center open? Do they have <clears throat> everything that they need, uh, I, despite what the press releases might say? Um, is, this, uh, is this crisis over? Jeff, maybe I'll start with you. I, as far as I can tell, it is um, in terms of opening city center. Now, as for you know what the economy is going to do, how they're going to perform at city center, how the rest of their properties will do, um, I, I don't know. Um, certainly, uh, the more pressure they feel on room rates, and they're going to be adding to the room rate supply problem when they open city center. Um, you know the, that that remains a question. But I think as far as opening it, and it was vital that it opened, um, I think it's going to. I agree with your assessment. It makes it um, much less likely that they're going to sell a Las Vegas property. They weren't, you know, I think the, there were some bottom feeders trying to find, a, you know, a great price, and and uh, MGM uh, successfully resisted it. They were, uh, they were so lucky in that so much of the debt that they had borrowed was just sort of, you know, in effect, it's the corporate version of the signature loan rather than the, uh, you know, rather than the mortgage um, type of loan. Or, uh, and, and so they didn't have a lot of debt tied to property. Uh, and so now um, to improve their lot, get a little more money, they have tied a bunch of their properties to um, these improved terms. But the uh, the – so that does make it more, less likely that they're going to sell one of their uh, their big Las Vegas properties. It wouldn't surprise me if they sell something outside of the market, um, and uh, you know, but probably in the market, it's it's pretty tough to envision any of their big properties going away. Well, what's interesting to me is that uh, you know. <clears throat> Every weeks ago, even everyone was talking about property sales, and it it really looks grim. But MGM really pulled this one off. I mean, I think if you look at their public statements all along, they said something along the lines of "We will be able to manage this. We'll be able to pull it off." But it seemed like leading up to this, not a lot of people believed that, uh, or at least thought that it would maybe more that they may have to take steps that they didn't want to take. And I'm wondering. Do people like Jim Murn and the other folks at MGM Mirage deserve a lot of credit for really pulling this off? Well, you know, I think maybe what it's going to come down to is they really they really do know what they're doing. Um, part of the, I think part of the issue is now with the internet being around, it's a lot easier for all of us to find out what's going on day to day with the with these financial structures. Where before this, we wouldn't know unless you were scouring the back pages of the Wall Street Journal. Nobody's going to know what some casino company is doing. You know how, how they get it. You know what's happening with the financing. I think it's because there's so much more information out there. We're able to see what happens. You know as it's going on, and it's much easier for people to second guess. You know, as someone who really doesn't know maybe as much as he should about how they. 
you know, how you build an $8 billion project without having all the financing in place before you start, you know, I, I really don't have any way to handicap it. But I think at the end of the day, there's still going to be a company that has a lot of exposure in the Las Vegas market. So unless the broader economy improves and people start going to Vegas again, they're, you know, I just can't see how it's going to end well unless that happens, and unless it happens probably within the next year or two. So, so the well, fundamental problems are still there. What they need is for city center to spur some some growth, spur some demand. I mean, it's it's adding to the problem on the capacity side, on the supply side, and what they need is for this property to be exciting enough to spur demand. Um, it's unlikely it's going to um, offset the new capacity, but at least to prevent significant erosion in room rates, you know, added to the erosion we've had over the last year or two. Um, what well, you know, the thing, one of the things that's you know sort of interesting that affected them was Dubai World. I mean, Dubai World saw its own financial situation deteriorate, uh, but you know they were able. MGM was able to skillfully negotiate, you know, sort of a um, a uh, truce with Dubai World, get them to renew their commitment to the proper, to the uh, project. Um, as it turns out, you know that is still a coup for Lanny and Murren. Um, that investment from Dubai World. Dubai World spent a whole lot of money on MGM stock that's now worth, you know, less than ten bucks a share, and they invested a bunch of money in half of City Center, arguably worth less now because those condos are worth worth less. So, you know, that was still a great deal, and the fact that they were able to get them back up to the plate, kicking in their share of money, um, that's another important component of why MGM's looking so much better. Without that Dubai world, um, you know, truce, it's hard, it's hard to believe that they would have been able to negotiate these other problems with the banks, and they would have had to do that property fire sale. So it's not like everybody was wrong looking at, you know, the, the, what was facing MGM Mirage. I think Jim Murren successfully negotiated his way out of a very, very dicey situation. I'm, oh, what I'm, a cur- I'm curious about is uh, the way that they've increased their wager on city center before it was just like a lot of money, a lot of debt. And little by little, it, from, from, from what I understand, they've sort of hawked and leveraged a property here and a property there, and they put up Bellagio to sort of secure the Dubai thing, you know, as, as an agreement. Now, what happens? I'm asking you guys because you probably have a better understanding of this than I do, but what happens if city center is a bust? Well, how think- the properties that they've leveraged, how would, you know, how would this company sort of fall apart if, if possible? Would Dubai end up owning Bellagio or, you know, New York, New York, or what have you? Well, Jim Murray himself said they've gone all in with City Center. So I interpret that to mean that he really believes his company's entire financial health is tied to City Center, and as goes City, as goes City Center goes the rest of the company. I, I believe the liens that they offered, at least on Bellagio, was actually a, an agreement with some of their banks for changing the terms on their loans. That's correct. So in theory, you know, if they didn't meet those obligations, the bank could force, uh, you know, maybe a change of ownership of that asset or maybe force a sale uh, under certain conditions. And, and, and when you think about what City Center is, 
It is another big casino resort in the middle with a couple um, condo and condo hotel uh, or condo and hotel properties, both the uh, Harmon and Mandarin Oriental, and then Vidara and Veer, um, more condo units, condo or condo hotel. And so, you know, I mean, it's clear. I mean, when you say, will City Center be a success? Well, it's hard to envision that they're going to somehow figure some miraculous way to sell a bunch of those condos between now and the end of the year. Um, what's clear is that they have a bunch of condo and condo hotel inventory that they have to sell. Well, they, you know, they're not going to be close to selling it by the time it opens. But then again, that inventory is retained value as much as they had hoped when they were, you know, started selling them. Obviously not. But um, you know, they brought they bought themselves themselves enough breathing room on the condo side, I believe. So what they really, so what they need is a decent performance out of Aria. And, you know, out of the casino hotel, um, you know, those condos are going to be a millstone around the company's neck for a while. Um, and there's no way around that. But I don't think that sinks the property. Um, I think that, you know, they need they do need to sell some of those units, but they need some excitement out of Aria. If Aria can generate some marginal visitor growth um, to add demand for the market, to keep room rates rates from sinking much more, um, and and even better if the property could be a big hit, which it it seems tough to anticipate now, but you know you never know. Um, then then that whole prop, property can start to become more of a positive. But I don't think you know it's going to be you know you have to really define what you mean by if city center tanks, because I think that there's almost no way that there's they're going to sell a lot of those condo units between now and uh, and the opening. It's just too tough to uh, you know get the appraisal and get the, and borrow the money to buy into a place like that. Nobody is sure of the value of them. Right. I mean, there was an article in the Sun I think today or yesterday on that topic exactly. Well, that was yeah. That's where the guy there's some disgruntled buyers who are who want negotiated prices down i mean i'm always amused by the chutzpah of people like that who you know they they somehow think the company is responsible for uh you know sort of uh paying back the bet when it goes the other way i have a feeling those buyers wouldn't be telling mgm you know what let us give you a million four because the thing's worth a lot more had the market gone the other way you know mgm gave up the upside by selling gave up potential upside if the market had kept going up by selling early. And, you know, those people, you know, they took on risk when they made it. You know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for, you know, these are million-dollar condo buyers, some as low as five or 600000 but on average about a million. You know, these are not naive, you know, you know, hicks coming in to buy a double wide. Um, so I, you know, you got, you gotta, you, you know, these people are not fools and, you know, so when I, you know, I, I read Liz's story and I think that, you know, that may be a perspective somebody has, but I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. I, I think that that story even mentioned that um, the way that the agreements are set up that I think MGM have to sell or have proceeds from the condos or something like $238 million or something like that, which I think even the deposits get them more than halfway there. 
<clears throat> which are non-refundable. So, I mean, I, you know, like like you're saying, they may most of these, these things may sit empty, but it's not going to torpedo torpedo them. They'll be able to fulfill their obligations under almost any imaginable scenario. And they have this inventory, very valuable inventory, thousands of condo units that are worth, you know, on average, you know, more than, you know, around a million, even if they're less, even if they're worth six, seven hundred thousand, that's a lot of money when you multiply it times a few thousand. So, And I think what's working in the long term, what's working to the benefit is that people in 2005, 2006, 2007, got into the condo market because they thought it was going to keep on expanding forever and, hey, I can eventually flip it and make some money. I don't think people are going to stop believing that. You know, sure, right now everybody's scared, but then once it starts creeping up again and people start to see everyone else making money, people are going to get back into that again. So I think fundamentally, you know, yeah, real, the real estate market's going to pick up again someday. And when it does, they're right. going to have a lot of rooms. Now, what I'm wondering is, you know, Lonnie supposedly bought a, a penthouse at Manor, Manor Oriental. His, his, as long as he doesn't pull out <laughs> and try to get his deposit back, <laughs> I think that they'll, that they'll probably be okay. You know, one, one thing that's sort of interesting about that, Hunter, is, you know, Liz, Liz sort of referred to it, how their friends and family, a lot of mid-managers and upper-level managers at MGM are in that thing. Um, I, I know a few myself. Um, fairly high-level folks who uh, who spent pretty big um, buying more than one um, in some in some circumstances, and you know the problem is that you sort of have an assurance of when you have an assurance of buying uh, of being able to get the the borrowing done, you know, a couple of years ago, and now that assurance is gone. So some people probably are looking at uh, at losing some deposits. And you may end up with a few investors who are just, you know, they're going to consider that money, um, you know, down the drain. But, um, you know, there are a lot of MGM insiders who are uh, part of that investor class. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't put in my deposit yet, but uh, always looking for a good deal. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the second part of this story, I want to stick with MGM, but uh, move our sites to um, – both Atlantic City and Macau. Um, this week, the Nevada, or sorry, the New Jersey Department of Gaming Enforcement—I believe that's the correct entity—Division of Gaming Enforcement. Division of Gaming Enforcement uh, came out with a recommendation for the uh, New Jersey Casino Control Commission uh, that to find Ms. Pansy Ho an unsuitable business partner for the company. Uh, Ms. Ho is their partner in MGM Grand Macau. And since MGM owns a 50% stake in Borgata with Boyd Gaming in Atlantic City, there's uh, potentially a variety of implications here. The first question I want to send to Dave, and, and that's with how these things usually go. Does the Casino Control Commission typically follow the recommendations of the DGE? They often do, but it's not always a slam dunk. Um, they don't necessarily have to. And Kind of looking back at it, if you could put together kind of an all-star team of all the people who have been denied licenses in New Jersey for not being suitable, <laughs> you'd have a pretty good management team. You know, you've got the Perlmans who ran Caesars World very successfully in Vegas for about 10 years before being denied a license by New Jersey. Um, Hilton Hotels were all Baron denied Hilton. a license. Yeah, Baron Hilton denied a license in New Jersey. So, they're kind of, yeah, And then, of course, you have Columbia Sussex, but... So it's not all good company, but it's a pretty good company to be in. Um, they are they're a lot they take the stuff a lot more seriously, I think, than they do in Nevada. And um yeah, I think they just really go over some people with a fine tooth comb. 
Yeah. But in terms of the difference between the DGE and the Casino Control Commission, if you remember with Bill Young in Columbia, Sussex, the Division of Gaming Enforcement recommended much more lenient treatment, and the commission, which is a more political body, um, you know, the uh, DGE is um, reports to um, the Attorney General of the state. Um, very different than the setup here in Nevada, where the control board um, is an autonomous body appointed by the governor. Um, in in New Jersey, the DGE uh, reports to their investigators um, are aligned with the attorney general. Casino Control Commission is a separate governmental entity, and the Casino Control Commission in the in the Columbia Sussex case. You know, voted. I believe it was four to one to to yank the yank the license. So it is not a sure thing. I, I think in in Nevada, um, the impression that regulators here have of New Jersey is that um, they are unpredictable, and that's you know in Nevada, I think our regulators are fairly predictable. Um, certainly, I see them as being a little more casino friendly, friendly, a little less. Um, you know, consumer-friendly or maybe, uh, um, you know, worker-friendly than I would like them to be. Um, in New Jersey, I think that they are just, they're very unpredictable. They can do things that are, you know, the young decision, you know, flabbergasted many people in Nevada. And, uh, you know, some of the earlier decisions um, that, that um, Dr. Dave um, referenced, believe me, those flabbergasted um, Nevadans as well. So, it is, you know, we consider them to be, you know, New Jersey to be sort of a, uh, a very unpredictable, volatile regulatory regime. Yeah, well, you know, um, kind of like what Jeff was saying, basically the DGE is pretty much state police, you know, who are investigators doing a job, who can be very, very gung-ho. You know, as somebody who's been, as an employee in the area when they're doing an investigation, it's not, not always a pretty, not, not always a lot of fun to be around. Um, but basically, I think New Jersey has, in a lot of ways, I think in Nevada, it's a much less adversarial system. I think if somebody's coming up for licensing, they go out, they get, a, you know, one of the group of gaming attorneys who's been around town for a long time. If that attorney takes someone as a client, they do some due diligence to make sure that they're pretty much suitable. So I think right there, the fact that they've got a known attorney representing them uh, ruffles a lot of feathers. It makes it a lot easier. I don't think New Jersey has that. I think it's much more adversarial, and they seems like they really like to uh, go and dig up a lot of information. Dave, oh. Dave, Dave, you could, you know, one of the things that I remember from when I first visited Atlantic City, um, and, I, and I don't didn't really, uh, you know, when I've been there in the last 15 years, I haven't noticed it, but when um, they first legalized gambling, um, and I went there, I, I remember every casino had like a podium. Oh yeah. <laughs> there was a commission control, yeah, that's a casino, casino control, control commission oh, yeah. person on duty at all times. Yeah. I mean, in Nevada, that would be unthinkable. Thinkable, it would require yeah. hundreds of, of you know, gaming control board or yeah. um, gaming commission folks. But I used to think that was very cool, sort of 
somebody a, a consumer could go to if they felt they were being ripped off in some way. And so I thought that do. was pretty cool. They often do. It is pretty cool. But they, you also need them to get in a hard count or soft count and to get into the slot bases. There's two keys to get into any of the slot bases or any, any of the money rooms, and the casino has one and they have the other. So, oh, for great. example, when, um, a couple years ago when Corzine didn't want to sign the budget, and made the legislature go back. They ran out of money. The commissioners went home, and the casinos had to close for like three days. That's right. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, they're really integral to the operation. So it's a much much different setup, which is, you know, honestly, in Nevada, it's pretty much a one-horse town. New Jersey's got a pretty diverse economy, and when it comes down to it, some – Minor town in South Jersey is pretty much on the low end of what they're doing in the states. They tend to be a lot more militant just because there's so much more stuff going on uh, up north. Chuck, I have a question for you because I know you follow both Macau and Atlantic City closer than I do. What, what do you – if MGM has to pick, if, if, for instance, let's say that this proceeds and they have to make a decision, we can either continue to operate in New Jersey or we can continue to operate in Macau. Any sense of what's more likely or any opinion of what, or what you think might be more likely? Well, you know, given the current state of things, I'd say, uh, you know, they'd probably keep the horse they got in the race going, you know, in Macau, the bigger horse. You know, it's got more potential – you know, they're going to make a lot more money there, you know, with future phases and whatnot in I think, than they will with the JV at Borgata. That would that would be my pick. Does anybody disagree? No, I think he's no. exactly right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely right. You know, Atlantic City market is down. It's been down for two years in a row. They, you know, there's it's going to be pretty tough for them pulled up, especially if they get that um, – Racino up at Aqueduct, up in New York, you know, at that point, why bother building Atlantic City? Well, you get an Aqueduct, uh, an Aqueduct Racino run by a big operator, whether it's MGM or or some other good operator. You have Sands opening um, this Beth Works in Bethlehem, very very close to New York, um, and you also have a couple Philadelphia casino, you know, casinos that have yet to open, um, and. You know, Atlantic City. You're, you know, you're right. The market is uh, is tough, and you know some of the constraints. Certainly, the economy is affecting Macau as everywhere else, but the, the constraints on on Macau in terms of visitation that's an artificial constraint that could go away. I mean, on the other hand, it could get tougher, but but it could go away. Um, and an MGM, even though it's it's typically the smallest of the six concession or sub-concession holders in Macau, even a nine, you know, eight or nine percent share, um, if that's what they have, um, is a it's it's a share of a big spigot that has the potential to get much much bigger. And you know, they're the most recent entrants, so that you know they still have. Um, you got to figure that they're going to get better with time and uh, maybe grow that share. Now, I also, uh, with, go ahead, Chuck. Yeah, with with their uh, uh, the announcement of the uh, the Dubai Bellagio and a couple other uh, sort of related things like the Ho Tram Strip in Vietnam and whatnot. You know, I, I that's another reason why I really don't see NGM Mirage getting out of Asia for you know Borgata on any any reason whatsoever it's just it's an untapped massive side of the planet that is just waiting to uh you know lose their money 
they wouldn't give that up for new and, and, and MGM has more than just half Borgata. They also have the rest of the H tract. Um, the uh, the land that Steve Wynn acquired a long time ago, and uh, had a, what's a yeah exactly, and uh, so that the rest of that H tract um, is a pretty it's a pretty attractive uh, land holding um, in Atlantic City, and so you know they have some assets to sell in that market, um, and I you know it wouldn't surprise you know it wouldn't surprise me for you know that to be a uh, you know something that they're going to they're going to try and do. You know now now the Casino Control Commission doesn't even have to take the DG's advice. They don't have to have a hearing. They almost certainly will. Um, but let's say they follow the advice of the DGE and tell MGM Mirage that their relationship with Pansy Ho is inappropriate. It actually, I believe, they'd be telling Boyd Gaming as the managing partner that Boyd's investment partner MGM Mirage um has an inappropriate relationship with Pansy Ho um and and so it would that would be something that would force some kind of some kind of an alteration um it's hard, you know and you don't really know what they might consider sufficient maybe some kind of a corporate reorganization where you know MGM you know somehow carved out its um, it's Macau or it's New Jersey entity from the rest of the company. Um, I doubt that they would accept that, but you never know. Um, but, but more than likely, they have to sell one or the other, either it's Macau subconcession or Borgata. And I think uh, all of us are in agreement that Atlantic City is much more likely to go. Now, what I'm, I'm wondering is, you know, a couple of years ago, or uh, <laughs> recent, not that long ago, they announced a potential MGM Grand Atlantic City on the rest of that land that you referenced a minute ago. Did they ever plan to actually build that, or was this some kind of a play to force this issue? Or to no, get they definitely the planned. I always called it the carrot. Um, it was, it was, you know, a couple of years ago, the casino, the DGE was ready to recommend um, approval of the Pansy Hill relationship, and uh, they they got a new chairwoman of the uh, Casino Control Commission. She did not want to accept that um, prior, the the uh, not quite submitted but almost ready recommendation of the DGE. Sent him back to do some more. Uh, some more investigation. Um, they were being heavily pressured by uh, groups believed to be financed by Las Vegas Sands, and uh, and so they went back and resumed the recommendation. And now all of a sudden, the official recommendation is no. Uh, but I believe MGM would have built. Um, you know, at the time, the market looked better. Um, they didn't have a smoking ban. They didn't have uh, um, it. The, the mar, you know, Borgata was sure doing very well, and the and it looked like a really nice, um, good casino might continue to transform the market like Borgata did, and uh, they felt, hey, you know, they and they really believe, you know, that's a company that really believes in its abilities. So you know, I have no now, was it meant to influence? regulators there yeah sure you know yeah we're going to come and buy, build a sports arena and you know condos and a big hotel casino or two you know you know it was going to accomplish a couple birds with one stone get regulators to get off their back about pansy ho and uh you know build a successful casino resort that would become the best in the in the east all right well before we move on i'm curious and did is there a time frame for this decision that's public? Not that I know of. Okay, so it's, they'll take it up when they take it up. So we'll hear more whenever we hear more. 
Um, next on the docket is uh, we're flipping back over to Las Vegas and uh, to the Fontainebleau. Um, unfortunately, uh, Fontainebleau Resorts are building a, a, a hotel on the Las Vegas Strip, and unfortunately, um, they've had a bit of a snag with regards to their financing. Um, basically, they were forced to file suit against their lenders when the banks that are funding the project refused to release about, I think, about $700 million required to complete the project that's supposedly supposed to open later this year. Um, in the past few days, we've even heard uh, rumors of layoffs at Fontainebleau and everything from not just construction workers but management people. Um, in, in just in a simple question, how screwed is Fontainebleau? I mean, is this <clears throat> are they going to pull this one off? Any thoughts? <laughs> Nobody knows. Oh yeah, I think it's the same. It's basically the same situation where they've got a lot of rooms coming on the market, a lot of convention space, and unless. I mean, you know, business travel is absolutely getting killed, and leisure travel isn't doing that hot either. So until they pick up, they've really got a lot of work ahead of them to, to get that, you know, to get that place successful once it opens. You know, I, I would assume that somebody would open it. You've got a building that's almost finished. It would definitely make more money open than not being finished. So That's really my question. Will a white knight come on the scene and give them the means they need to complete this project? Is that likely? You have to think it is. I mean, James Packer's in for a quarter of a billion. Uh, you know, I don't know how much the uh, I don't know how much the the uh, the folks behind Turnberry, the Sofers, have. I don't. I doubt the former Mandalay executive. Uh, I doubt Glenn Schaefer has. You know, he certainly doesn't have shares of a billion to put in. But um, you know, the question is, and and this may just be sort of a timing maneuver where. You know, the bankers, you know, yank the Fountain Blues chain a little bit, give them a little breathing room from the city center opening so that, you know, they resume construction when, um, you know, to, so that maybe they would open mid-2010 or, you know, later in 2010. You know, you see you have two projects that are very similar. It's just that in, in Cosmopolitan and Fontainebleau, it's just that, um, Deutsche Bank has a much bigger stake in Cosmopolitan right now, so they're throwing. You know, they have the assets to throw money in. Um, right now, the bankers are refusing to follow through on their commitments for Fontainebleau, and you know, would it, it probably wouldn't take much more. A couple hundred million bucks from Kerry uh, Packer would probably do the trick. They're probably looking for some, either. Packer, or, and I shouldn't say Kerry Packer, James Packer. Um, they're probably looking for James Packer or somebody else to come up with a couple hundred million bucks that would make the bankers feel better about the about the leverage of the property. But you know, the timing is horrific for this this thing. As much um, you know, it's, it's opening. It's supposed to open in the same quarter as City Center, and they have. All these condo units that are, I guess, now going to open as hotels because they understand they can't be sold as as condos for quite some time, and and this is all just adding to the the looming capacity crunch. Um, too much capacity, not enough demand for the market, um, and even though prices are great and people are coming to town because of that, um, you know they're coming and paying cheap rates, and that just hurts, you know. Um, it's a, you know room rates are the most important metric um, for our casinos right now. 
Well, that's what that was going to be my second question: is it, would a delay actually help? Would it actually help the property? And you know, I think there's a real possibility that that's true that it could. It might help the market more than it helps the property. Well, okay. I mean, they certainly have to continue paying their, sure. you know, their cost of money in the interim. Um, but does it help the market? You know, there's. I think without a doubt, it helps the market. Um, whether it helps, unless unless it was so captivating and so you know attractive that it also boosted visitation more uh, on the on the demand side more than the increased capacity hurts on the supply side, um, and I think that's doubtful. I think it's more likely at city center that that could happen, but even there, I think it's doubtful. More doubtful at um, at Fontainebleau and even more doubtful at Cosmopolitan. Well, speaking of it being fantastic and incredibly interesting, Chuck, you posted some renderings from inside the property uh, on your website. And I think, I believe your comment was along the lines of um, the, the renderings are making you more excited to see what's in store at Fontainebleau. Um, can you explain why? Well, uh, they just, uh, the outside, I think... Sorry, I got a drag race going on outside my house. <laughs> it's blue versus white. White wins. All right. Sorry, it happens all the time. Uh, you know. Hey, that's just like City Center and Fontainebleau. Blue versus clear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, you know the the, the 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 renderings that I've seen. You know, it's kind of like the first little peaks on the inside of the place. The outside, you know, it doesn't re- it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. It looks like a thermos. Uh, like a gigantic blue thermos to a degree. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get a picture of, of the way this building is sort of going to act within within everything else. And it reminds me a lot of uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the the Grand Lisboa in Macau uh, the, with, the, with the new, that egg thing with the lights on it, you know, that they can project whatever it is on top of it. That big blue thermos is really just a gigantic movie screen Basically, the outside of the whole building is going to be a movie screen. The inside is going to be kind of a movie screen. And, and you know, the, the, the lobby with this weird, spacey, sort of, uh, like, crystal, like, water spout coming from the, the ground to the ceiling. And it looks like Star Trek, you know, the, the new Enterprise. And there's, like, a half a chessboard in the middle of the floor. It's very kind of abstract in a lot of ways. And the colors, you know, the... It's got a little bit of an Asian beach sort of theme to it, but it's but it seems really elegant. You know, well, I'm looking at drawings here, so you know you can't really tell until you touch it and you taste it and you feel it. But you know, it's got a really elegant sort of beach thing. You could walk around either in a tux or in one of those Borat, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what the hell those ridiculous bathing suit things are called. You know, it's, a unitard. Unitard. That's it. Yeah. You know, it just—it seems really exciting and really kind of comfortable inside for me, uh, and and almost a little avant-garde in some spots. Uh, you know, a lot of the interior renderings are seen as some of the other joints, uh, particularly like the—we don't really see too much like the casino areas or actually anything of the area, but like the hallways and stuff. You know that. Some of it just, you know, it just seems really kind of glass and metal and really kind of hard and steel and whatnot. And this. You know, it, it's it's not groundbreaking. It's kind of like the M Resort to a degree, but it, but but that's a gorgeous 
it's gorgeous property. That one is, and and this seems. I think it's going to be just the same. Chuck, uh, Chuck, um, you know how people when they look at the evolution of the Wynn properties, um, and they say you know look at Roger Thomas and Wynn, what they did with Bellagio or Mirage, then Bellagio, then you know Wynn, and then Encore. Um, would it be fair to say that it's a this is sort of you know this is Glenn Schaefer's um, you know baby? Would it be fair to say that this is sort of a continuation of Mandalay Bay than the hotel at Mandalay Bay? Is it sort of a sort of a blending and a refinement of what what they did at Mandalay and the hotel? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good uh, a good way of looking at it. You know, he's sort of been stepped away from the biz for. You know, how long has it been since Mandalay Bay opened? Was it that was ten years? Ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, ten and a half. That's that's like an eternity in terms of casino design and whatnot. You know, and I think maybe the steps after like the Mandalay Bay and whatnot, you could probably look at Red Rock as like the huge jump like after that, even though that does incorporate a lot of that typical station kind of, you know, movie theater or whatnot, food court deal that they do, but in terms of the way that that type of design, you know, it seems like a jump to there, and now it's kind of coming back to this now. But the hotel has, that that the hotel at Mandalay has what you were talking about, sort of that very avant-garde kind of lobby, Uh, minimalist, sort of dark. Um, the rooms, though, um, very you know, dark, but 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 fairly plush. I mean, there's a lot of softness, a lot of fabrics in the room. Um, you know, I so it's not. I mean, I'm just I was just going on your description because I have no, seen. I, I think that Jeff, you're exactly right, and that that's <clears throat> that's a point that I would have made. I mean, it, this has definitely got from what I know of, of Glenn Schaefer and his design sensibility, and I know he's very interested in art. Uh, this is like right up his alley from what I've seen, and it's clear. It looks to me like it's got his fingerprints all over it. Uh, I mean, I remember looking at original drawings for Fontainebleau from I think these are now a year, two years old. But the inclusion of a Zen garden uh, on mm-hmm. the casino floor level. I mean, to me, that's that that the little I know of, of Glenn Schaefer, that seems very Schaefer-esque. Uh, something that would not be out of place in that connecting hallway between Mandalay Bay and the hotel. Um, and uh, so I can totally imagine that, and I, and I do think uh, we're seeing his uh, influence on the design from the little bits that we've seen. One of the things is just so, you know, I feel sort of um, sort of sad that these properties are opening in such a in such a tough economy. Um, if these properties, um, it's my opinion, if these properties had opened in 2006, that the hype would have been unstoppable. Um, that the demand for the city would have grown astronomically. And uh, there's something now about a depressed economy like this that just sort of, you know, it, 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 people have downscaled their ambition in terms of uh, what they're looking for out of travel, and yet, you know, they're never going to get a better opportunity to come and stay at, you know, beautiful places like these and some of our more recently opened resorts like, you know, Encore and Wynn and, and 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 other places, um, it's just it's just sort of sad that the, these properties aren't going to be able to capitalize on the kind of uh, kind of go go attitude we had back when, say, when Las Vegas opened. Yeah, that's true. But you well, know. the the opening of a, the opening of a win Las Vegas happens only once every what? 
10 years, 15 years. Now, that's a really monumental event. I don't think anything could, uh, you know, compare to that. Well, quite honestly, I expected City Center to trumpet. I mean, I, you know, when you think Mirage, when you think Bellagio, then I think Win Las Vegas would be the three most recent examples. And I fully expected City Center to be that kind of a thing. You know, you have, you know, the Harmon overpass cutting through the strip. You have all these dense condo towers in, you know, close proximity, a very, you know, urban environment. You know, you know that there's going to be some dramatic art, some dramatic, you know, some very dramatic things in that project. And, oh. and you know, I mean, you, you look at the thing, it still looks very cool. Um, some people don't like it. I very much like it. But I just, I, I just am sort of, um, disappointed that the time has changed and it's just not the right time to be opening something so great. I'm not going to get their fair shake, perhaps. Well, hopefully they can overcome it um, because it is some pretty interesting stuff. But uh, as a as speaking as a consumer, uh, I wouldn't mind to have City Center and Fontainebleau spaced out a little bit more than they would were originally planned to be. But um, well, you know. See what happens. When, of course, uh, someone's going to open that building someday. It's just a question of when and who. <clears throat> Moving on for Fontainebleau, um, the uh, Center for Gaming Research at UNLV, of which Dr. Dave is the director, uh, recently released their analysis of the past five years of gaming figures. I wanted to talk about some of the trends in these numbers. Um, and first off, Dave, can you tell us a little bit about the process and how you put this? Are you the author of said document? Yeah, pretty yeah. Um pretty much it's just taking the the um numbers from the gaming revenue reports for the past 5 years and taking the biggest, you know, kind of the, the broadest snapshot which is the annual figure for the entire state and comparing it and seeing where it's going and it, it's kind of interesting because one thing I hadn't I hadn't suspected was seeing how much the capacity of Nevada casinos has fallen. And we've lost something like 7,000 slot machines in the past yep, five that's years. 389. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for the growth in poker, which added, I think, about 400 tables, mm-hmm. and a lot of growth in Baccarat, we would have lost a lot of tables, too. Probably the equivalent of maybe two or three mega resorts worth of, uh, <laughs> worth of casinos a closing. Significant but, decrease. Um, so let's see. What, I, what I'm asking is, um, you know, based on this information, uh, do you ever um, <clears throat> make any projections? Do you have any guesses? Are we going to continue to see a decrease in, in – are these trends going to continue? I don't know about a, a decrease, but I don't think we can see the kind of increase where we were, we're adding capacity for so long, and those numbers are going up for so long. It doesn't look like they're going to go up. Even after these new you – know, even after Fountain Blue and City Center open, we're not going to be back to 2004 levels as far as capacity goes. It's just not going to happen, and if that doesn't put us over the top, I don't see what will. Um, although, of course, a lot of casinos have opened on the Strip, you still got have casinos that have – closed in downtown and in Reno and other parts of the state. So I think statewide, we're going to continue to see the industry shrink. Uh, While Las Vegas is going to remain somewhat vibrant, I think the rest of the state is going to continue to shrink because the other pressures like Indian gaming are just going to increase. Now, these are the non-restricted properties, the casino properties, Dave. Have you looked at all at what the restricted um, device numbers have done during the same time. They don't put them out on that report. No. Um, I'm just wondering if there has been any corresponding 
change in uh, in slot numbers, which are taxed on a device basis rather than on a revenue basis? Yeah, that's probably going to be the next uh, project I work on, is trying to get a handle on that part of the market. It would be interesting if that market – you know how um, – and, and, and Dave and I are uh, both Las Vegas locals, and there is sort of a pecking order where the people on the strip maybe play at, uh, play at locals casinos, and maybe the locals casino employees play at um, – at, the uh at some of the bigger slot bars and you know PT's pubs and their various iterations but um and that's very generalized i'm sure there's a lot of cross pollination in all directions but um i just wonder if as the uh lo- as the strip has grown a little and loss and the locals casinos have grown the loss of tables and devices notwithstanding if maybe some of those people are moving to more people are moving towards those um, restricted um, slot bars and neighborhood bars or convenience stores or whatever and doing gambling there. I mean, it could be the opposite. I don't know. I just was throwing that out there. Yeah, it's definitely possible. It's, it's definitely something I want to look at, too. So uh, if, let's say, uh, you're a casino executive or a Nevada politician, should these numbers scare you? Well, you know, Nevada politicians, yeah, because – so much of the state, our, our tax structure is so dependent on gambling that when you have the size of the gambling industry falling by however, however much percent it has, you know, it's not incredibly a lot, but even, you know, if you have a business, uh, an industry that traditionally has been growing by 5%, shrinking by 2%, that's not good, you know, and I think it's re- it'll be really hard for people in the state to come to grips with the fact that, geez, we're going to either be at a plateau or we're going to be shrinking. We're not going to be adding more machines. You know, revenues are going to go up as inflation goes up, but I think as a percentage of, you know, just as a, as a constant, as something constant adjusting for inflation, I don't see how it's going to go up that much more because we're not adding any more uh, volume. Well, the the, uh, the non-restricted gaming revenue, like you said, is based on, I mean, the state's tax is paid on, on the uh, on the win for the machines, um, but they do get a slight amount, um, a small amount, even at the non-restricted place, as a per as a yearly license fee on the device, and then, uh, but also. Um, you know the state, the, the money the state makes from casinos is not. Uh, I mean, su- such a huge amount of it is gambling connected, but not gambling tax based. Gambling tax, big big piece of it, but sales taxes that are connected to casinos, sales taxes on rooms, on food and beverage, on entertainment. They have a, a casino entertainment tax, and then there is the the hotel. Um, the hotel tax. And so all those things together, um, plus, you know, the incredible number of people that the industry employs, they pay um, payroll taxes as well. So the casino industry does pay a big chunk. Um, I think the device slowdown uh, or the device um, shrinkage, I mean, to me, nothing um, intuitively um, tells me why that's happening. Um, I know that in, in in rural Nevada, there are, have been closures of casinos. Um, you know, the, a lot of those casinos that were viable four years ago aren't viable anymore. Um, in Las Vegas, we're sort of, we've sort of seen a, you know, close one place, open another. You know, whether it's New Frontier and Stardust and Boardwalk, you know, replaced by some new projects. 
Um, but you know, I, I, I'm very interested to see what when when we get into the why for how this happened. I'd I'd like to know a little more about it. I'm I'm curious if um, if we have any figures or if we know how how does the how does this trend compare to other big markets like Macau and Atlantic City? Similar trend. I mean, or, or is Nevada an uh, an outlier in this case? Don't know. You know, the Atlantic City market definitely is, has shrunk now with the sands closing and nothing opening to take its place. So, you know, as far as gaming devices go, I would say that's probably shrunk. Um, Macau has added an awful lot of capacity, so I think they're a little bit still, you know, behind the curve there. They're they're still on the way up. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thanks for putting that stuff together. I know uh, I know that. Uh, numbers geeks like myself really appreciate it. It's fascinating to look at that stuff. So definitely have people out there that are uh, that are digging it and um, and like checking it out. Oh yeah, well you're you're welcome. It's it's good to do. Uh, we were going to talk about licensing today, but since we're closing on an hour, I think we're going to save maybe save licensing for next time, uh, and we will wrap it up here so I can let these gentlemen get back to uh, more important business. Um, so I'm going to say wrapping it up for today. Thanks to everyone for being here. It was a great show. I had a great time. I'm going to go around the table, and you guys can tell people where they can track you down. So, Mr. Jeff Simpson, where can people find you? InBusinessLasVegas.com. Dr. David Schwartz, how about you? DiesCast.com. Mr. Chuck Monster, where can people find you? VegasTripping.com. Excellent. And I'm at RateVegas.com. And thanks to all, and have a fantastic weekend. Thank you.